Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, uh, your host, and today we are delighted to have with us a long overdue interview um, with Sheldon George uh, discussing his book, Trauma and Race, a Lacanian Study of African-American Racial Identity, and my earbud just fell out of my ear. That was interesting. Okay, there we go. Um, Sheldon is the chair of the Department of English at Simmons College uh, in Boston, where he teaches on African-American literature and culture and literary theory. Um, This book uh, that we're going to be discussing today was published in 2016 by uh, Baylor University Press and um, forthcoming also, and we'll talk more about this during the interview, um, Sheldon and Derek Cook have a book coming out um, on a call titled Lacan and Race and published, will be published by Rutledge. So uh, without further ado, <laughs> but it's long overdue, I've been really wanting to interview you. Um, I'd like to welcome you, Sheldon, to, uh, to New Books and Psychoanalysis. Thank you very much. We've been planning this for a while. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great that we finally finally made it. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everyone, which is uh, to the degree you can understand your own motivations. Uh, what what motivated the writing of of this particular text? I think uh, at the time I was reading a lot of people who a lot of African American scholars who seem to take seriously um, and truly believe in the concept of race, which to me seems really problematic. To me, race is grounded in fantasy. And I was reading people like Lucius Outlaw, who seemed so attached to race that, you know, his, his arguments seemed to defy logic. And I was trying to to understand what's happening here. So part of it was my engagement with the existent scholarship at the time. But part of it, too, was just a reflection of a sort of discord between my sense of race and how I saw others talking about race. So you'll notice that you know, the fantasy of race is at the center of the text. Yeah. I'm thinking of your other colleagues, um, like uh, Houston Baker or Henry Louis Gates um, as well, and in, in talking about the idea of resignification. And in this book, you, you have a lot, you have some really, um, I mean, I was complete, as a psychoanalyst, I was very much so convinced by um, what you, um, argue about uh, what what's left what's left out of the resignification project would you care to talk about that sure. for us yeah sure so um i think one component of uh african-american theory theories of african-american culture and african-american literature um is an is a focus on resignification it's this effort to redefine the terms that have defined us. And African-American scholars have tended to see this as a route toward establishing some level of agency. But the problem, the, the core problem with resignification is that it's focused singularly on the symbolic or um, the world of language. And so... This this notion appears in different ways. Henry Louis Gates Jr. talks about a concept that he calls the signifying monkey. And, you know, he's done work on trickster figures and other African-American scholars have talked about trickster figures and the ways that they play with language and the way that you gain agency through manipulating the meanings of words. And so... Uh, um, one example may be, you know, uh, resignification of the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be an effort there to claim the word, 
to define what defines us. But the problem is that you're only working at the level of the symbolic. And what you miss from a psychoanalytic perspective is the unconscious and what Lacan calls the real. The real being um, inherently what escapes language. It's the space that trauma occupies. And so part of my analysis um, is focused on the idea that um, slavery is a traumatic past that cannot be directly addressed through resignification. Uh, It's actually masked through resignification. Um, Part of the argument that I make in the book uh, um, comes from a reading of Du Bois and also of uh, Frantz Fanon. And um, what I show through those two figures is the way that resignification becomes an attempt to compensate for trauma. I define trauma as a confrontation with lack, a sort of splitting of the psyche. Lacan talks about trauma as the approach toward um, the approach toward a place that you can only encounter through a splitting of the subject. And so there's a splitting of the psyche when you confront something that's traumatic, but we can't stay in that place of trauma. And so what ends up happening is that identity itself becomes an attempt to compensate for trauma. And the implication for me um, is that African-American identity is caught up in this attempt to compensate for trauma. And one one, one thing that propels this continuous attempt is the belief that we can resignify race. Um, But you're not getting at the real. You don't touch the real. And so in truth, it's the real that's propelling you and giving you a false sense of agency. Right. And um, uh, there's a quote from the book that uh, jumped out at me. For Du Bois, slavery crystallizes his feelings and sense of self in what Lacan calls a, quote, dialectic that has as its center a bad encounter. Right. It's, so, it, it's, pal- it's palpable and... Go ahead. You, uh, I'll, I'll add on later, maybe, if it comes up. Yeah, so what happens with Du Bois, I think, is what happens with race in general. That is, the way that Lacan talks about trauma is that um, trauma has a, um, a sort of a moment of overt confrontation where you confront this traumatic thing. But then your understanding of what you confront gets displaced onto something else. And so my argument is that what what is inherently traumatic in psychoanalytic theory is the splitting of the psyche, which is, in Lacanian theory, it's the root of subjectivity. The psyche is split into what Lacan calls the um, symbolic the real, and the imaginary. And that is what constitutes us as subjects. So subjectivity itself is traumatic. And um, that splitting of subjectivity introduces in us what Lacan calls lack. And um, I can explain what all of that means in more detail, but to to complete the thought, what happens is that this splitting gets displaced. It's not associated with something that has happened in the psyche. It gets associated with a temporal moment. And so Du Bois's own psychological 
um, splitting gets pinned to the specific historical moment of slavery. And so there is a conflation of personal trauma or more precisely personal psychic structure with historical trauma. And I think this is the root of a lot of other conflations whereby the the subject starts to see him or herself in relation to race, which gets rooted to the past of slavery. So that slavery comes to um, comes to explain one's racial identity and one's racial identity starts to become the core of one's self. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure you know this quote uh, from um, uh, For Colored Girls by Antozaki Shange. I couldn't mm-hmm. stand being colored and sorry at the same time. Right. It seems so redundant in the modern world. Right. And I thought that quote kept coming up as I read read the book. I said, I think this is what part of what you're trying to get to encourage people getting up and under and underneath. There's a there's another place to go yes. is um, part of the risk you take in this book. There is an elsewhere. Um, and um, asking, of course, asking people to give up on their uh, identities mm-hmm. if they're rooted in trauma usually arouses um, a lot of resistance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure you've uh, had many conversations. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, the lure of race is that, to a certain extent, it is protective, right? Um, The way that I talk about it in in the book, um, especially toward the end of that uh, chapter that's focused on Du Bois and Fanon is I talk about race as a sort of wound, a scar. And what does a scar do? It, it, it protects you, right? It protects from further infestation. But at the same time, it leaves a mark. And um, it, the mark that it leaves for African Americans is, is a sort of sore spot in the symbolic itself. It's, it's a it's an incomplete integration into um, the larger societal structure. And so within the tapestry of the symbolic, there is this, this mark, this dark spot um, that cannot be fully integrated. And so um, yeah, th- there are a number of metaphors that I use throughout the book, uh, race as a shield. You know, race does have protective qualities. Um, it does have political utility. But the problem is that uh, we get lost in it and um, we start to believe that this is me. I'm my race, you know, and um, fr- from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective, um, Lacan talks about what he calls the ethics of psychoanalysis, and he ties ethics to desire, to the proper functioning of desire. What I see in race is something that diverts desire. Du Bois talks about falling in love with a woman and then dumping her because she's white, because he couldn't take what people were saying on the streets. Um, Franz Fanon has a patient um, that he talks about who uh, falls in love with a white woman and dumps her. and says it's because um, th- this is a, a guy named Jean Venus in Franz Fanon's Black Skin White Masks. And he says that, um, you know, he leaves her because she's white. But then Franz Fanon, working from the position of his analysts, realizes that 
he leaves the woman because he is what Franz Fanon calls an abandonment neurotic. He's someone who has been abandoned in the past and so abandons others before they can abandon him. And so what what Fanon is pointing to is the way that race becomes an excuse for his psychic structure. And it masks his true psychic structure. And so I think there's there are these ways that race get gets conflated with um with the psyche, with lack, with desire, and sort of takes us off of our path. Right. It can be used to sort of um, uh, negate or um, uh, the que- right the quest for wholeness, and you really get this sense in this book. The quest for wholeness is in and of itself such it's so problematic, and. A thought I had as I was reading the book was that um, I wondered, I said, oh, is, is, are you arguing at some level that having a split being, of course, we're all split subjects. We don't really, you know, get, we don't really get to choose, but um, this is, this is how, how it goes. This is what language does to us. But in some ways I, I had the sense you were saying that, um, that, that being a split subject is actually um, a how to say almost like a privilege for African Americans to get to be to to see oneself as a split subject, and I guess that goes back to the Shange quote, like it's redundant in the modern world. But 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 from being a split subject, from being barred, from submitting to the law, one also gains access to desire. Exactly. Uh, living outside the symbolic is right. is no picnic. Right. Yes. Exactly. And and. Um, I read race as an effort to suture the split, to get past the split. And um, that's problematic, right? Because that's, that's inherently, um, that stands in inherent opposition to the structure of subjectivity. Subjectiv- subjectivity is rooted in lack but what race aims at is wholeness so part of part of the work that um um, part of the thinking i've been doing about race uh sort of extends freud's work um in the the in groups group psychology where he talks about um race as a um as connected to the group's identification with some object in in the group's um, um, in the group's leader that somehow gets um, gets seen as the missing object that is in the members of the group, and so that that singular object, um, according to Freud unifies the group because it's both absent from the group and also within the group. And um, what I've argued is that that object is what Lacan calls the object A or the fantasy object. And um, for me, that fantasy object is race. So race is this fantasy thing that is both missing from you because it's intangible, but also inside of you. Um, and, and, and so it's the thing that all members of your race lack and the thing that, that you need to unify with the group to get. So race from a Lacanian perspective, is this pursuit of wholeness. It's an effort to regain that absent thing and make yourself whole. And um, Vers- Versus finding, seeking out um, 
other quote unquote objects, as we use in, in psycho, psychoanalysis, the, that term, seek out other objects to compensate us for our lack in a way is what you're saying that like race is like a self-immolation, almost like a feeding, a feeding frenzy upon the self, a, actually a, a narcissistic lure rather yes. than a turning outward to the external world where there might be riches or there right. might be risk. Um, right. Yeah. You can say that desire is rooted in metonymy. Race is rooted in metaphor. With metaphor, there's no movement because you've found the object. So race is about this sort of obsessiveness over the singular thing that will complete me. And so desire loses its natural metonymic proclivity um, and it's stuck to this obsessive thing, right? And and I think... if you extend that argument, I think um, things like white supremacy make more sense, right? This sort of obsessiveness, um, the certainty that it's this singular thing that I need to fix all of my problems, that's where race really becomes problematic. One, one of the ways that um, I think about race is in relation to religion. And one of the, the arguments that the book makes and that I've articulated elsewhere is that race has replaced religion um, um, for... You know, religion has historically been very significant to African Americans, and it has given them a sense of identity. But there is a way in which race functions like a new religion. You know, um, it tells you what is good and what is bad. It tells you what to glorify. It tells you what to worship, right? And we really see that, I think, um, in the sort of obsessiveness that we've seen in, in the state capital, right? That that sort of, um, you know, Trump has become like that that leader that Freud is talking about. He is the guy. If I follow him, he can make me complete. He can fill my lack, and so I'll do anything for him. You say something, um, actually. The where it is, I think it might be in the chapter um, on Ellison, but that that whites that uh, I'm thinking in terms of the Lacanian structure of the sort of the, the hysteric, you know, the the pervert, the psychotic, and you don't use the word hysteric; you use neurotic. Actually, speaking of African Americans and the relationship to race as one that could become neurotic, but for whites, it's uh, more on, in line with um, perversion or the the pervert, um, which made just uh, it clicked. I was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, it, it, you're at, on the one hand, the book can be read as an argument to say, okay, um, you know, for African-Americans, it's time to go beyond ultra race loyalty. It's time you know, to leave, you know, the talented 10th behind it's time, you know, to, to face outward. But at the same time, right. If you have whites are turning more and more, toward this use like this this insane per, you know perverse fetishistic right use of of black bodies um at jab i mean can you <laughs> can you can we speak about this because I, I i found it i found it really like i was like yes he's just put his finger on something so important so so you so, cut out there for a moment but i think i got most of what you said. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, in you know, Lacan talks about the structure of desire, and he has this formula for for desire. It's the barred S, and then the lozenge that that you know that diamond shape thing, and then um, the A, 
the object A. And that's the structure of fantasy. So every bard subject experiences their lack, that empty space in the middle, in relation to the fantasy object. But the difference um, between neurosis and perversion, and and, um, I think the model that I'm using is more closer to obsessional neurosis as I talk about people like Hamlet and so on. But anyway, um, what happens is that the neurotic is obsessed with the left side, what's happening to the left of that gap, right? Which is the barred S. So the neurotic is obsessed with their lack. They feel their lack and the symbolic reinforces the idea that they are lacking. And and that's the kind of structure that I think African-Americans are pushed toward. Um, American society says to them that you are lacking. But um, the difference between African-Americans, and and in the book I lay out the argument through a discussion of slavery, where slavery is precisely about the notion that African-Americans lack and the slave master does not. And the reason you know the slave master does not lack is because the slave master has the slave um, who actually functions as the object A. But um, so on the left side, you have this notion of lack that's associated with African-Americans. But on the right side, you have the object A. And um, Lacanian theory talks about perversion as an effort to take on the role of the object A, to take on the role of the object that brings a subject, brings another subject toward a state of jouissance or pleasure. So you become an object for the other's pleasure. And, um, you know, this is something that um, Lacan articulates uh, um, in relation to childhood, for example. Um, You know, the child wants to be the object that the mother desires. The child wants to be the object that fills the mother. And um, what that means is that the child stands in relation to the mother and not to the father. In Lacanian theory, the father gets associated with the law and with language. And so the child only has a, a sort of indirect relationship to the law. And um, I think what you see with whiteness is this sort of indirect relationship to the law. Um, Whiteness invokes a need to maintain the law, but what it really aims at is filling some sort of illusory emptiness in the system, right? I have to be the object. And again, the, the white nationalist is perhaps the best example of this. I have to be the object that will make the system whole, the system being the the sort of um, embodied presence of the mother, right? But um, the mother isn't fully associated with the law, which is why breaking the law isn't a problem. (laughs) And and so I I think you, 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 in on both sides of this equation, what you have is a struggle to overcome lack. And it plays out in different ways. Yeah, and if you actually remain merged with the mother, you lose. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, just, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't work out. Uh, yeah. It just doesn't, doesn't work out very well. Um, and, in, in, in strict Lacanian terms, you're probably heading for psychosis. Right. <laughs> in, in, in many terms, um, yes. <laughs> different psychoanalytic schools. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the, uh, the thinking. Um, I, uh, let's see, God, I have so many different questions here. Um, somehow the, the 
the title of um, Zadaya Hartman's book, uh, Lose Your Mother, just came to mind. Um, and how um, I love that book. And it's a, sort of the outrageousness of, it, it fits in somehow with, when I was reading this book, I was like, yeah, like, what is it to face losing your mother? What does one have to gird oneself and to go forth? And just thinking about her journey to Ghana and facing, I will never have access to, you have an argument in the book about, about history and about the past. And have you read, you've read Hartman's work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, um, some of it. I, I, you know, I, I associate Hartman with um, the Afro pessimists who have a interesting take on race that, um, <laughs> that I, I'm challenged to agree with. Um, I struggle to, to see some of their views. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, was, I, I mean, that, that, that's very clear. Um, I was you know, reading you and uh, Hartman and uh, Wilderson more or less, not quite concomitantly, but it's like very, very different argument. But you know, she, But she goes to Ghana and she's looking for the archive mm-hmm. in search of an archive that doesn't exist. And in what you're writing, there's, it seems to me you're, you're saying there, there has to be, um, we can't descend into melancholy. Uh, into a melancholic state to sort of speak outside of Lacanese, you know, but in a sense, I, I was like, so are you, you're suggesting that there needs to be a mourning because in mourning one, then let's, let's go. Um, one lets go of this sort of very traumatic relationship to the past. And yet, right. Trauma is like so popular. I mean, you, you're really up against it. Like trying to, you know, because everyone's like, I've been traumatized, I've been traumatized. The popularization of trauma. And in fact, there's, you know, within psychoanalysis, um, you know, there's the the idea of the inter, the international, my God, <laughs> intergenerational, international transmission, the intergenerational transmission of trauma, very popular within the relational school and now being, um, applied uh you know thinking about slavery thinking about reparations i'd really like to ask you about uh, your thoughts about reparations um maybe we can get to as well um just i'm on a committee at the the center for modern psychoanalytic studies the um psychoanalysts against racism committee and we're having a lot of discussion about a reparations fund and it's like you know, I read. I in reading your book. I was like, well, so, so no to reparations. Um, sort of, or, <laughs> I know it's not that simple. I mean, Hartman comes down no to reparations because I don't want not wanting to be seen as um, sort of. Uh, I think I think lacking an agency, which is not a term that it, it's not a, in my book, not a psychoanalytic term. Right. You know, like Baker uses it, Gates uses it. They're trying to push toward agency. But I'm like, yeah, what about the unconscious? Right. So anyway, I so, so yeah, like where do you have thoughts about how current discussions around reparations, um, how you see it within the framework that you put forth uh, in this book? Any thoughts about it? Well, <laughs> well. I would Anything say you don't want to say? <laughs> no, no. I, I would say so, that it's it's clear that um, they are lasting. There's a lasting impact of slavery um, that's social and that's cultural, and that African Americans have been left behind socially, economically, um, and so yes, I, I, I think you know, um, I think. Politically, um, it is something that is necessary. Um, what I struggle with is what does this mean for how we think about lack? Um, so um, I think, you know, Christina Sharp, who is another one of the Afro-pessimists, talks about wake work and, you know, Morning that's necessary. Um, looking uh, getting the past into the past. I mean, she right. she right that that's something that she really 
emphasizes is how right. can I get this past into the past? Why won't it get into the goddamn past? Right. So Winnicottian, you're getting, yes. if you can't get the past into the past, what a, what a right. disaster that is. Right. And from, you know, L- Lacan says that when you don't mourn, what happens is you leave a gap in the symbolic for the real to emerge out of. So the real is birthed from within this gap in the symbolic. And so you do need a way of closing this gap. Um, But for me, that process um, shouldn't be obsessive at a personal level. It could be obsessive at a political level, right? Because this isn't changing very quickly. So we need political activity. But I think as individual subjects, we need to separate our political aspirations from any sense that the fantasies um, pinned upon us somehow define who we are, fantasies of race, right? So we have to battle the fantasies and battling that fantasy means political activity, but it also means not giving into it on a personal level. And again, I, I would say this is one of the things that I find problematic in you know some of the Afro pessimists' writings that I've seen. Um, Wilderson's, you mentioned Wilderson, he's his yeah. most recent book um, titled Afro Pessimism. Um, I, yeah, I, I, there, there. I mean, he's very, he's very overt, right? He's very clear that he's coming out of a psychotic break. Right, right. And he begins, I mean, it's not like a secret. He begins, he begins the book there. And, and in thinking about your argument, if there's only sort of the, well, I don't know, yeah, I'm going to screw this up. I was going to say if it's only the real and the symbolic, but but there but there's a collapse that he cleaves to. There's a comfort in a collapse where um, where there could be, for lack of a better, there could be space. There could be an acceptance of limit. There could be a grappling with limit. There's there's a limit there's a limitlessness to um, to to the Afro pessimist pessimistic position, right? In that it is it is the lowest of black is the lowest of the low the bottom of the bottom. Um, it's it's one note. Yeah. One so note. I I I I'm not an analyst, so I don't want to analyze Wilderson, but I'll say something about the book. You know, I'm, I'm a literary critic, so I'll talk about, you know, the book itself. And, and I think one of the things that I see in the book is this effort to define, um, define Afro-pessimism as what he calls a meta-theory, which is interesting because then, you know, it becomes a theory about theory. Um, And so there, I wonder to what extent we have that same resignification that I've been talking about. Um, And the resignification seems tied to the concept of blackness, which um, the text says is distinct from and shouldn't be collapsed with any other um, notion of otherness. And, you know, they, they're drawing on work that I draw on, Horton Spiller's work, for example, um, and, and Orlando Patterson's work. Um, Patterson talks about the, the ways that the slave is alienated my difference with Afro-pessimism, um, one of my differences would be um, that I see the effort to alienate the slave um, as an effort, not as something that is 
always successful. And then the next step that Afro-pessimism makes is to read Blacks as slaves, which, yeah, what, what does that what does that mean, right? What are the implications of that? Um, what sort of temporal relationship gets collapsed there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. also the lure of essence. Like you can feel there's a, you know, and whenever the lure of essence comes in and it's not strategic, you know, like I like, you know, like fuss and like we're thinking about strategic essentialism. I always was like, yeah, that, I, I get that. But I guess the strategy interesting the strategy um is uh to to claim um the most abject status as fixed which is really strange right because on the one hand the argument is that uh what slavery has done and and again this is coming from spillers in part is it's transformed personality into commodity right that's a phrase from one of Spiller's essays. Um, um, so there's this transformation, this objectification of personality into slavehood. So then what does it mean for a theorist to assert that African-Americans um, exist perpetually in this condition? You know, one of... Um, the the collection that Derek and I are working on has uh, an essay by Jennifer Friedlander um, that engages my work and some other um, Black scholars' work. And she poses the question, um, you know, how do we deal with fantasy? I think it's a really smart question because, you know, to go back to what I was saying about um, Afro-pessimism as a meta theory, the urgency within the theory is to see itself as um, capable of seeing past theory, seeing reality for what it is. Um, and, and so, you know, the Afro-pessimist is woke. The Afro-pessimist sees race for what it really is, right? And, and I, at some level, that means for the Afro-pessimists, seeing race as a fantasy. But then if you recognize that this is a fantasy, then what do you do next, right? Do you try to dismantle the fantasy or do you try to operate from the perspective of race in all cases? Um, I, I think I think the effort in Afro-pessimism is to cling to race, whereas the effort in my work is to get past race. Well, let's, let's talk about your uh, chapter on Beloved which was a delight. Um, I just, I was like, woof, you really, <laughs> we, we, we watch, you know, Setha move and move deeper and deeper into fantasy, into psychosis, you know, merge with a ghost, um, in c- controlled by a ghost. A patient comes in and tells me that, you know, the television is speaking about her. That's Setha. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And yeah. you know that's that's I mean that's when I read that book I was like oh this is a psych this is a descent into psychosis. I mean it's it's actually Morrison's second descent into psychosis. She does leave um, in the bluest eye. Um, she leaves Piccola in in psychosis. Um, but in Beloved we see the transformation, the move from a psychotic life to to a, to another life. Another a life outside of psychosis. Um, oof, just it was. I just loved what you did, um, and and I don't know. I just wanted to say that to you, and the students loved it. You know, so uh, I um, yes. Yeah, so you've mentioned that you've been teaching this stuff, which is really strange. That's right. To you. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I I think that 
chapter is sort of brings together a lot of what I've been saying, because what we see in the figure of Beloved, you know, there's that moment in the novel where um, Setha, Denver, and Beloved are all talking, and it's unclear who's talking. And um, there's this moment where Setha talks about losing her mother, where uh, Beloved talks about losing Setha, and she says, I've lost her three times. And the first time that she loses her is when the people with no skin, implying white people, we're meant to assume, um, steal her from her, her mother, and there's gun smoke all around. And so the sense is that the first time that she loses Setha, right, who is living in times of slavery, um, is um, years before when this, um, when Beloved is in Africa. Now we know that Setha's biological daughter isn't from Africa, right? Setha was born in America. So what Beloved represents is the embodied trauma of what um, Morrison's epigraph calls 60 million or more. She represents the embodied trauma of the slave. And what, um, what Setha does is open herself up to that trauma. At the end of that section, when the three of them are all talking, all of them say, she is mine, she is mine. So it's this process of claiming the other, claiming this traumatic past that opens up Setha to a trauma. Yeah. So, so that's, one, that's one way that Morrison is thinking about trauma. Um, that's, that's connected to my argument that um, race itself opens you up to trauma. But Morrison is also talking about trauma as a haunting that you just walk into. She, um, Setha talks about her rememory when you bump into a memory that belongs to someone else. I, I think there you have a model of racism as bringing you back to the past. So both race and racism, adherence to race and practices of racism bring you back to the traumatic past. And what it does for Setha is it really destroys her sense of self. And so what we see in the final pages of the text is Paul D. imposing an identity on her. And he says to her, you, your own best thing, Setha, you. And when he says that you, she replies with a question, me? <laughs> me? Right? It, yeah. It's like an accusation that he's <laughs> posing upon her, but it allows her to claim an identity <laughs> that is separate from the past. And so I think that's the kind of movement that we need at an individual level. Um and, De- and Denver is like watching what Denver does. Denver says, I, she, "Denver's like, okay, my mother's not. She's she's choosing this over me. This over. I mean, Denver's very a very painful character, like to be in, and to watch her, and she has to move herself out into the world to mm-hmm. get to she, get other things she needs in this life. She's a very heroic character too." Right. She is the character who is who is constructing a path toward her own desire on her own. And so I, I think both of these characters, Setha and Denver, represent the individual work that African Americans have to do within the larger context of the political work that has to be done in opposition to racism. They're two separate levels that get conflated in a problematic way, um, most typically, but not in Morrison's work. Um, well, we're almost at 50 minutes. You just, <laughs> we, bingo, we are. The session's over. We'll have to stop here for today. Um, yeah. We do have to stop because um, I don't want to. This is just 
this is terrific and there's a million more things to talk about. But, you know, we have some um, some rules and regulations around here that we try to abide by, you know, so nobody goes crazy. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you uh, for taking the time. And um, I'm going to be very much so looking forward um, to uh, your new um, publication. Um, when do you mm-hmm. expect it to come out, more or less? It's it's at the presses right now. It's at Rutledge. It's in production, and it should be out in the summer. Oh wow! Yes, maybe we'll be out in the summer. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we'll just be in the house reading books. <laughs> yeah, walking the floor over it. Right. Um, yeah. So okay. Well, that's. That's really exciting, and um, I look forward to teaching you again. Um, and uh, maybe I'll send you my syllabus. This one is a little. This is different. I'm not teaching um, as I taught before, which uh, was your book and uh, Fakhri uh, David's internal racism. And, I, and for the listeners, um, I believe that um, Fakhri uh, and I will be talking um, probably in the next month or so about his book, internal racism. So. Um, yeah, but this, you know, the students are, you know, we're going to have a whole new group of students and we're going to work our way um, through uh, chapters of your book. Not the whole book this time, but um, but I told them they have to buy it. You know, you got to buy this book. That's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <you're> great. <laughs> and I'd love to see both syllabi and, sure. uh, and get a sense of how they're responding to it. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, you're. I mean, the book really. Th- this book moved. This last class, I had it moved people, and they were only one person really was quote unquote the local, you know, Lacanian expert. But it, it took it took people places emotionally that um, a lot of Lacanian work um, can can leave the same crew cold. Actually, your book took people places, and um, so they got in touch with sort of feelings, structures of feeling. So that doesn't happen often in the book of, of um, sort of, you know, theory and literary theory. Um, that's so great. You know, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm writing for multiple audiences. And so it has to ring true for Lacanians as well as people interested in race. So it's great to hear that it translates yeah. well. Absolutely. Uh, sort of like in the way that Mari Rudy or somebody, it's like a little, you're, you're a little more a little less user friendly than she is, but you're, <laughs> but it's in, but it's in it's like, it, 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 it translated and people just went with it. And the class, just people who did not know anything, they were like, Oh yeah, this is, this Lacan stuff seems pretty important to, you know, connect to race. So, yeah. All right. Well, listen, um, a delight. Um, I don't know when it'll, when the interview will be up, but I'll send you a, uh, I'll be in touch with an email or something. And um, um, I guess that's all for now. Actually, I'm going to stop recording and then you and I can just say goodbye in person. Okay. Okay. Excellent.